This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lamigo. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Matthew Napoli and Mariusz Novak about Serverless Framework V3. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 130. everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And this is Serverless Chats. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, Jeremy. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, but you are in an interesting place right now. I am. This podcast recording is coming at you live from Anchorage, Alaska in the Spinard neighborhood. So that's me. That's awesome. I am sitting in my office like I usually do listening to electricians make a lot of noise in my basement. So we will do our best to get through this podcast. But We have an awesome podcast today. We have two amazing guests that are from Serverless Inc., where I work, but these two gentlemen work on the Serverless Framework team, and there was recently a launch of Serverless Framework V3. So our two guests today are Matthew Napoli and Mariusz Novak. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So before we dive into questions around Serverless Framework and Serverless Framework V3, Why don't you tell us a bit about yourselves, Matthew, will you kick us off? Yeah, sure. So my name is Matthew. I work on the serverless framework with Mariusz. Uh, I work as product manager on serverless framework specifically, except that I've been working with serverless technologies for a few years. I absolutely absolutely love these topics, technologies. I've been working on a few open source projects as well, like Breath, which is about PHP on serverless. And I've been also AWS serverless hero for yeah, more than a year now. That's about it. Oh, that's it. Just a small little thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mariusz, what about you? Yeah, sure. Yes, I'm Mariusz Novak. I, I work also at Serverless Inc. with Matthew. I'm engineering manager at Serverless currently. I work uh, mostly in the framework, but also on the console product currently for the Serverless framework. It's like three years that I'm involved with the framework as an as a employee of Serverless Inc., but it's five years that I work with the framework. And... Yes, for, for many years, I'm a mostly JavaScript programmer, like down to the core. And yeah, that, that'd be the short introduction, I think. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, so let's talk about serverless framework version three. So this is a recent release. So before we get into some of the details, you know, maybe Matthew could get your perspective on this, but what was sort of the motivation sort of behind this new major release? Right. Uh, kind of twofold. On one hand, we really wanted to simplify the developer experience. Uh, And we'll be talking about the details, but yeah, simplifying the CLI experience, adding features like for quality of life improvements. And on the other hand, with major release, uh, that's the opportunity to clean up a few things, both from us internally for for our own benefit, but also for users' benefit to clean up old versions, old features that were deprecated and, and so on. Will you tell us a little bit more about that? So you said that you have this idea of like uh, simplifying and cleaning different parts up about it. There's also a completely new CLI experience. So will you tell us about that as well? Right. So the idea with the CLI is that uh, serverless framework is a very mature project. It's been there for years. And of course, over the years, uh, the whole experience with the CLI got uh, more complex over time more and more information because we add, obviously, features to it. The idea with V3 was to kind of start over with 
what you get when you interact with the CLI in the terminal and try to remove as much as we could. So it was really hard. Like, what can we remove? What should we make more visible? What's the actionable information, the most useful part we want to emphasize on, depending on the command you are running, whether you are deploying, invoking functions, fetching logs, all of that, and think about how do we format the output as best as we can for that specific use case. So we've yeah, redesigned the, out, the outputs of the CLI, basically, and we can get into the details. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think, you know, I certainly would love to get Mariusz's perspective here, too, because I, I look at the I look at the pull requests on GitHub and the comments that you put, like, you're such a detailed per like, honestly, like, I don't know how you keep all of that in your head. And I know that, you know, over time, like you said, Matthew, the CLI just got bloated, right? Like, you just, we just kept on adding things. And we have like, we had the, the Tencent component that was, I think, integrated in, and then there was components for a while. So this thing just got really, really, really big. So besides just the fact that we've simplified it, I think one of the things now too is it's like 40%, uh, it's like a 40% lighter package. So I don't know, Marius, you want to talk a little bit about like some of the things that were sort of cleaned up in there and, and some of those package size reductions? Yeah, sure. So the thing is that technically serverless framework V2 was a CLI, but that consisted of three very different CLIs programs, technically. There was a serverless framework, but also on the other hand, we allowed the serverless components version one, which was totally like a different CLI and components V2, which was totally different CLI and also included it like Tencent version. So uh, the big problem is that the, that there was two, three very different products maintained differently with different set of dependencies. And some of them were not really maintaining it effectively for, for the past, uh, for the past months. And they had shared some security issues, et cetera. And as we didn't have the vision to evaluate them further, we decided to actually drop those dependencies from the V3 and, and they can be still installed by the users, but they need to use them directly. They are not part like a serverless CLI now currently. And, uh, one thing we, we also add that is that, uh, serverless tenset still needed to be part of the serverless package, but we didn't want to blow the regular framework users with their dependencies. So now it's like installed on the demand. So, so whenever we, we detect that someone is using the serverless Tencent, mostly in China, it can happen. Then we download it on the first usage and just, you know, just redirect uh, the command to, to it. So that's what it happens. And the same way, like we removed the tap, 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 tap completion. It was like with a minor part of this cleaning thing. Thing is that with TapTap auto-completion, it was that it shared some security vulnerabilities and also it was no longer maintained. And as currently our CLI doesn't have a like really prompt startup time and it's quite important for TapTap to be effective, we decided it's not worth that much to, to hassle with that at the beginning. It didn't have also like log uh, user user usage track. So so that's, that's basically it. We removed technically not really used CLIs, so it's mostly serverless framework. So what really people are using here? And that way it's also 30%, 40% lighter now. So before we get into like, there's a really big feature that was added to framework itself. And then there are obviously more like deep details that we can get into about the new CLI experience. I love how both of you had said, you know, we, we redesigned it and then we, we noticed there was a lot of bloat. We knew that there was like different things happening that made it too complex. I'm wondering if you could talk about a bit the, almost like the, the bellwethers or the indicators of those things. So for example, was it users that were like saying like, hey, this is getting like really difficult to use or was it customers that were like, hey, we want to use this, but 
now we're trying to, you know, onboard teams to it and they're getting stuck or lost. So if you could talk a little bit about like that, that when you, when we redesign something, right, we're redesigning it for the person using our product. So maybe some of those like inputs into like, okay, how do we start to break down what the issues are, where people are getting stuck, what feels too bloaty, or is it something that just you knew already from internally trying to use it yourself? There, yeah, that's the great thing about working with people that love. So, I mean, you, if you work at Serverless Inc., you are kind of invested in Serverless. So, so many people at Serverless Inc. do use the Serverless framework. Everybody has an opinion and it's both really uh, interesting to work with that. It's fun, but it's also challenging because when you talk about designing anything, everyone has an opinion. So it was kind of a fun process where we had to iterate, like everyone was Honestly, everyone, even people like users we talked to uh, would kind of want a new, a simpler design. We were talking about, like we had discussions go ongoing about deprecations, for example, which were kind of verbose and visible in the V2 output, but also like a lot of details when you deploy, you have different details and steps going on with logs as well, kind of noise in the, in the output too. So we had all of these kind of signals. Everyone had an opinion and then we tried to collaborate on, on the design with, uh, we had some basically iterations internally on, on uh, different propositions and trying to get feedback from every, everyone. We also had issues and that maybe uh, Maish can maybe talk about that, that were a bit more technical, but quite interesting as well about standard error outputs and, and, and standard outputs, like uh, how we improve that part. Yeah, sure. And... Technically, the, the V2 logging was pretty primitive, like everything was just flash. It was a bit configurable, but not in the like uh, really great manner. So what we achieved with the new and also through the Matthews great design for the, for the new logs is that we now providing very slick output, but it's also very configurable. If users still want this, all of this information that was outputted with the V2, the user can easily and get it through the, uh, by operating on the lock levels. Like we have the verbose plug for the more verbose output that will give you technically more, all of the output that was in V2. We have also new debug, uh, debug mode, which just serves more developers and, uh, and the, and the plugin developers, like developers of the frameworks and the plugin developers, like before V2 was outputting this information in some scenarios to the users, which was like totally noise for them, not, not really a comprehensible and really polluted the, the, the picture for them. So, so now it's very well organized, it's configurable. And as uh, Matthew mentioned, we also separated things like substantial command output, which goes to the STD out and the technically message logging to the STD or it allows the commands to be processed as we had uh, a process like programmatically as we had requests from the users over the time that they want to like, for example, I know consume logs programmatically or like a like resort of the local invocation. And it was not really, well, SOS print, for example, it was not really possible because some messages warning were, were also getting into logs. And now with a clear separate streams, it's all, it's all possible. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's a huge sign of maturity of any product. I mean, you mentioned maturity or, you know, just that it's been around for five some odd years. And all this user feedback, all of these people hitting up against it. I mean, one of the things that's added here is just strict handling of the parameters, like a validation on parameters that are going in, which is just a really nice feature. It's nothing more frustrating than like putting in a parameter and it's not right and you're just getting error messages back and you're not sure what it does. But also that simplification of the logs 
it's now you just get back like exactly what you need, right? So just the feedback that you need. And if you really need to push that forward, then you have, like you said, that verbose mode and with all these different modes, but that motivation is really limiting the logs and just getting to the point where this is what you need to know. And here's the minimal, sort of that minimal approach. Like what was, what was some of the, the process that you went to, to to sort of narrow that down? Yeah, it was challenging. Just to take one example, uh, the errors. So you have an error and you try to be as, as specific as possible, try to order information in, in the right way. So we went through different, again, different iterations and like, okay, how do we use color uh, effectively, not have too many colors, just have uh, like, yeah, for errors, we want to really in your face, like red cross and, and the error message extremely visible. Uh, and have yet supporting information, like where can you open a bug issue or when can you, how can you get into the forums to ask your questions? How can we output the version information so that if you report a bug, we can have the right version in there. So fitting all that information was kind of, uh, it took a few tries. With the deployment itself, we also figured like we want to show, so the idea is to show information that is useful. So the deployment goes through so many steps. And the question is, do you need to see all those steps by default? We, we settled with no. You need to see information that either, for example, it's really long. So you need to know what's going on. You need to be reassured that the thing is not stuck or broken. So we show the steps that take a long time, like maybe packaging or uploading the files to AWS. These we show. And as soon as that step is finished, we replace it. So it's kind of an interactive output. And we show the next step. And there are things that we inten intentionally skip because you don't need to know about it. It doesn't bring any useful information. And when the deployment is done, we show again like the URL because this is what you want to see. You've deployed an application, you want the URL and you want to see the confirmation that everything went well. So you have the check mark and something that explicitly says service deployed, uh, these kind of things, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and the thing is, is that, you know, working with Austin, who is the CEO of Serverless Inc., you have to be very particular about the colors that you use <laughs> on the uh, on the CLI. But, you, but you're totally right there about, you know, like CLIs, by the way, it's not like you're using a web page, right, where you've got all these design choices. Like you're very limited in terms of what you can do. But yeah, I think uh, I think the the team nailed it, though. I mean, the the it really is the right balance of colors and information and output to let you know that, that things are working. So let's talk about the big feature that was added to the framework itself, which was, actually, I won't give it away. You tell me what it was. That way you can do the big reveal and then tell us what it's all about. Uh, right. Uh, so we call the feature stage parameters. And this is a feature that was actually inspired by what some users already do. So they have the need to deploy the application to different stages, development, staging, production, and they want, they need to change the configuration based on the environment. So in production, you want to send emails and enable transactions and everything, but in development, you don't really want to do that. So just one example. And that is possible with V2. You can figure out how to make it work, but as it, like, it should be simpler. It should always be simpler. Don't have you shouldn't have to mess with nested variables and and coming up with your own way of solving the problem. So we figure that we could ship a very small feature, gain quality of life improvement, that solves that problem. So you can define parameters and values for each stage, override them. So by default, I don't know, like uh, send email is disabled, and then in production it's enabled or stuff like that. 
Yeah, and also it's, I think, nice to add that it kind of overlaps with the improvement to handling of the CLI params because we restricted now the CLI params to only those defined by the schemas. And users were like using for all those freeform CLI params in, the, in further configuration variables resolution. And we wanted to actually restrict them to, to have this validation right. So, you know, nothing that doesn't, not, not intended to be deployed is deployed, for example. And now with the params, we also version V3.3 uh, allows to pass those params through the CLI. So that way users can still use arbitrary CLI params, but through the C param CLI, they need to then put the name and the value of params they intend to use, and they will be resolved in the configuration as a, they will have a top priority over configuration params and eventually dashboard params. So. Yeah, and I, I think you're underselling it as a minor feature because honestly, every serverless application I've ever built with the framework uses, you know, custom variables and then, you know, you create objects under those that these are the prod ones and whatever, and you're repeating variables and things like that. And then anywhere you reference it, you know, you have to have those nested variables, nested variables and so forth. And that just becomes super confusing. So this just makes it, in my opinion, super clear. So don't undersell it. I think it's a really, <laughs> I think it's a really good feature. And then I think the other thing that sort of happened as part of that was that you rewrote the variable resolver the entire variable resolver behind the scenes as well, right, uh, Mario? So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yes, correct, yes. You had this old resolver, there was tons of issue with that. With that, I mean, the old resolver was like regex base. Uh, it was pretty flaky. Users could also override this regex. So uh, in some scenarios, like not all expected characters were recognized. Uh, the other problem with the old resolver was that when you, for example, put a function that was supposed to resolve variables it received the framework instance which had uneven state it was oh, it was the properties that were not yet resolved by the resolver etc it's a, actually quite it was quite a complex problem but we really wanted to have that right as as they we had constantly you know issue reports towards the resolver very quirky issues so Technically, I rewritten it. Uh, I didn't use actually the regex uh, resolution, but more like state machine resolution. So this syntax is now very, very strict. There is a prevention against the um, like the recursive uh, recursive resolution on which alt resolver just hang indefinitely. So yes, there were many other things uh, fixed over there, like also like some core uh, configuration properties as provider plugins can now be set behind the variable resolution. This variable resolution also now uh, happens at the earlier stage also to allow to, to give this uh, more powerful means for the resolution. So we can technically put variables against all the configuration properties. We have improved the error handling like with the, with the old resolver if some if there was a crash, for example, in variable resolution, it was just silent. It was just warning print that now we actually, uh, we actually crash. We, um, we also, when the variable was not result of the variable was not at the target source, it was also silent. Now we allow to decide whether it's a crash or whether it's a, or whether it should be like overridden with a null. So I think it's all now really, really, uh, solid. Of course, we had some issues with the C resolver at the beginning. We had some bug reports come because this is quite complex engine, but at this point, I'm not aware of any, of any issues with it. And I think it's pretty solid and works really well. And I'm guessing, so does this have any effect on plugins and plugin authors, like anything that people should know? Well, leading question. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, 
plugins can add their own variable sources. And it was also the same with the old resolver, although with the new one, they have a bit, I think, nicer interface and they have also access to all the other configuration properties to resolve, assuming they do not introduce some recursive resolution, but they will have the meaningful error if they try to do that. So, so they have a more solid, more, more persistent interface for that. I would just try to remind you, there was one issue actually for plugin authors that now the whole variable resolution uh, happens earlier, but I think it was not really that related to the variable resolution, but more to the environment variables. I'm not going to dive into that. I think it's just, you know, all, all the, all the positive aspects of it. Yeah. And again, the plugins are like one of the things that make the serverless framework so great is that there's so many things you can do uh, and you can just extend it yourself. So it's great that if you're, uh, you know, if you're a company or a team and you want to do all custom things just for you, you can do those right through, uh, right through the plugins. But one of the things I wanted to, to mention, because this is something that was really big for me, when EventBridge first came out, I, I immediately was like, oh, let's go ahead and deploy it. And I'm like, oh, there's no CloudFormation support. I'm like, well, that's crappy, which is, you know, happens every once in a while. But then all of a sudden, serverless framework's like, oh, no, 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 we support it. I do that, and then I see there's an extra Lambda function that gets deployed because it's using custom resources, and I'm like, oh, this is not the way I want to do it. But at least at least serverless framework supported it. But now CloudFormation exists for EventBridge and stuff like that. So that's one of the things that I know you changed. So now it uses CloudFormation to deploy to deploy EventBridge. But are there other like little changes? I mean, I, there were so many things that, that, was, that were done as part of this, but like what are some of the other little tiny things that probably were bugging people? You mentioned the, the tab tab completion was, was removed. Anything else that, uh, that, you know, little features that were sort of added or plugged in? Well, as I think uh, uh, of the future, I mean, definitely, for example, we needed to upgrade the supported write runtimes by the AWS because we cannot just remove the, from the configuration, the, uh, without making a breaking change. And this is what we cleaned out. And we also made the Node.js version 14 as a default and the same with the, with the Python uh, as a default runtime for, 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 for the, sorry, that in the, in the Python case was not about the default. It was actually that we just recognize, we no longer recognize ones that are not longer supported on the AWS sites. It's a slightly different thing. And the other small, are really rather small things, I think. For example, in the, we had, we introduced support for the HTTP API in the V2, but uh, it didn't, uh, then it was like missed that we didn't support provider tags to be applied automatically on it. While in case of API gateway, they, they are, so this is like a really minor thing, but with V3, we fixed this issue and they are now applied also by default. In V2, it's uh, behind the flag. So we also like improved programmatic usage for the framework, although it's not the thing that was really requested by, by the user. But I think that also it's not requested because framework was very, very painful to be used programmatically. And I think everyone who tried was just stumbled on it and resigned and just treated it as a CLI. So now currently the framework still you still need some steps to be like really perfect on that. But currently when you just require the, 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 the framework and you just initialize the serverless instance, you just pass the command name options configuration, which should be actually resolved at this stage. And, and you can run, uh, and we can initialize and run, run the instance. And it will also not pro produce any, any, for example, console output. So it's really clean. So it's now way cleaner for the programmatic usage. I probably should have asked this at the beginning, but I've heard you all speak about like, quality of life improvements, right? And I actually have only heard this like a few different times in terms of like building software. And so maybe it's like used all the time, but maybe it's also something that you all talk about internally a lot. 
And so I'm wondering, right, it sounds like all these improvements, like right? you're reducing complexity, you have, uh, what was it, um, stage parameter support, right? You have excellent, correct color usage. You're like making sure plugin authors are taken care of. Do you have like an internal board of stack ranking of like quality of life? Like if I could change this, it would help me save this much like mental burden, right? Or this much actual time, or it would help my colleague be able to perform their job X much better. So I like this idea of quality of life, like approaching all things that you're building in terms of not just how does this make the product better, but actually improve the quality of life for everyone who's trying to use it. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the, this idea of when you're looking at what you want to solve and then drawing a straight line to quality of life improvement. Well, so I'm not sure if I'm answering exactly your question, but I, I feel it's kind of related. One thing that is really challenging when you look at serverless framework, and especially when you look at the repository, is that there are so many people that use it with so many different use cases that you're like, someone will want to add a flag to support this small CloudFormation feature or this small thing that applies for 1% of the user base. And it's, it's kind of a, a, an accumulation of so many of these little changes that happen. If you look at the number of releases in the serverless framework, it's not just like you have V3 and that's it. You have so many releases every week with all of these changes, sometimes contributed, sometimes done by Mario or Piotr. And all these small improvements are kind of related to slowly improving the developer experience on all of these small details to accommodate all of these different use cases. This is, uh, to me, this is the hard part because yes, when you have a feature that applies to so many people like stage parameters, we could kind of imagine that it would impact a lot of the user base, but so many features are really like for niche use cases or small use cases, and it's hard to really judge and prioritize sometimes. So that's, that's to me, that's the challenging part. We are trying, by the way, to kind of improve that, have a process where we also ask the community to participate in issues or feature requests by, you know, voting in GitHub. That's kind of working out. Sometimes we have, uh, we use the prioritization, uh, prioritization on GitHub with those votes. It's kind of interesting to see what people are really interested into. You can sort GitHub issues by reactions or comments. Uh, so that's something that we use. And we also look at how the serverless framework is being used. Like what do people deploy the most with it? Uh, what are the most popular use cases, the most popular languages it's being, being used with to try and yeah, figure out how can we have the most impact with some features while sometimes doing big or sometimes small changes. That's, uh, yeah, that's how trade worked. Yeah, no, I think that I think that makes a ton of sense. And I mean, and one of the things you know is crazy about the framework, and this is something I don't think maybe people don't think about. Like, you have a paid product, right? And there's a, you know you, you tend to hopefully get a lot of users and things like that. But being an open source product, I think people demand more of an open source product than they do of one that they pay for. Um, like, if you're not paying for it for some reason, you know you you want more from it. So you do have all these different use cases. You do have all these requests for features or flags or whatever it is. But I think one thing that's shared across all use cases is security. And I think a lot of people don't do security well. And I know there were a couple of security enhancements that were made to V3. And it'd be great if you could uh, talk about that for a minute. 
Yeah, well, I think both, most of them were mentioned that we actually sorted out those insecure dependencies that were that were technically just, you know, uh, producing those NPM audit logs. So maybe, you know, in the real usage, they were not really that insecure, but at least they, they, they raised the alarms or that. Uh, the other thing was that the, that we improved handling of the CLI params. Uh, I think it's more of a issue. I'm not sure if it's, uh, it's, uh, if it's that much about the security. It's insecurity in terms that user won't deploy something that he don't want accidentally, for example. So I think it's more, uh, more about that. And in terms of other things, we try to keep our dependencies up to date, but it's doesn't really specific for the, for the V3 release. I mean. V V three zero zero is just like we are constantly on that on that path. Bottom line feels very secure. <laughs> is very secure. Not even feels. Yeah. Just is. Yeah. <laughs> all, yes, all, definitely. Yeah, I'll reframe. Is very secure. Um, it well, feels how, and it is secure. Feels and it is. feels secure because it is secure. How about <laughs> <Yeah>. that? <laughs> Hi everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor Lumigo. Gain full visibility into Lambda invocation flows quickly with Lumigo, the cloud monitoring and troubleshooting platform that helps developers like you see the whole story end to end. Resolve critical issues in serverless and distributed environments, giving you better insights into your Lambda's mind. Start free today at Lumigo.io. Well, how can people start using version three? And are there any major upgrade considerations or like, you know, things that people, that, is, is it going to be plug and play or like, uh, how should people expect like, okay, I need a, I want to upgrade a V3 and this is going to take 10 minutes, an hour, a day. Well, tell us, you know, tell it, us. It, it, it depends. I mean, uh, it, all, it also depends a lot of the used plugins because sometimes users are really relying on the old, not maintained plugins. And we had really sometimes trying really hard to put them into shape for the V3. And for most of them, it, 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 we, we succeed. For some of them, we needed to relax a bit our approach to the changes in V3. So I think there are just very few, very few plugins which will not work in V3 and those users are really affected, but they can, they are, I believe there are forks for those plugins which have those issues fixed or also user can also easily make a fork and, and do that. I think in most cases, uh, users should be very easy to upgrade. I think there are just individual probably cases where, where there can be issues. There's one specific thing related to how we hash Lambda versions when, when someone is using version hashing and we needed to change, uh, change it a bit, uh, in a V2, but we couldn't really make it default because it was a sort of a breaking because if someone now deploys the same service with different hashes, then AWS complains and throws an error. So we changed this in the V3 and this may, uh, also be a bit of throwback for the users to upgrade, but we. Uh, created a really nice guide on how to uh, on how to overcome this, and Piot prepared a uh, special uh, special command handling that will allow users to very easily to migrate to this uh, new Lambda hashing, like with that two commands run, and they are migrated. So, if user is willing to upgrade to V3 and doesn't rely on any like really outdated and problematic plugin of which are very very few to my knowledge, I think he should be able to go. Um, I know our, uh, to me, max, but you know, uh, that, that's, that's what I believe, but <laughs> it all depends. And, I mean, we also tried like even beyond time involved, some projects like the deprecation system in place in V2 was kind of, uh, helpful because if you have a project 
and you are in V2 and you have no deprecations. That means you can upgrade immediately without any change. This kind of instant. You install V3 and it just works. And if you do have deprecations, then, I mean, we have uh, for each deprecation a notice on how to solve it. So sometimes it's about renaming uh, an option in YAML or just yeah using a different option. And if you follow those deprecations and you solve them in V2, then you don't have any deprecation left anymore and you can upgrade to V3. So yeah, the summary is kind of upgrade V2 to get the latest version. Check if you have deprecations, if you have them, solve them, and then you're good to upgrade. Exactly, this is the, is the way to go, as Matthew, Matthew mentioned. Technically, the deprecations uh, information tells you whether you can upgrade. If you have some deprecations, solve them. And most of them are very, really straightforward to solve, unless they are triggered by the plugins, but then users should seek, I don't know, plug alternatives or maybe fork them, but that should be rare. And once that's done, they should just upgrade it and, and, and it should work, yes. Yeah, that uh, Lambda hashing version warning used to drive me nuts, though. <laughs> I was like, why, why do I have to change this? But actually, so that's a, another question. For people who are using V2, maybe they get a whole bunch of these deprecation warnings, you know, because they're using older plugins or things like that. Are we going to continue to main, maintain support for version 2 for a while and then eventually roll everybody over to V3? Or what's, do you know what the timeline is for that? It's kind of a yes and no, <laughs> if I can say. Because I mean, if there is a... a critical bug, a security issue in V2, of course, like, I mean, it makes sense to fix it. People like, we are a bit more than a month after the V3 release, and we have already 30% of the user base in V3. So we still have people on V2, of course, we don't want to leave them stranded. But yeah, most of the work happens now in the V3 branch, and new features obviously are added in V3, and so far we haven't seen any critical bug in V2. Uh, so that's the current status. Awesome. All right. Well, so speaking about the future of, you know, future features and things like that, um, let's talk a little bit about the future of the, the serverless framework. Because V3, I think, was a big step, cleaned up a whole bunch of things, just another step in the maturity journey of a, uh, you know, a very mature open source project. Um, and again, always great to serverless Inc. is putting a lot of time and energy and resources behind maintaining the framework and investing in the framework, um, you know, to keep that going. Now, five years ago, six years ago, it was CloudFormation and the serverless framework. Those seem to be like the only two frameworks out there. Now we have uh, Terraform and we have CDK and there's SAM and there's SST and there's Pulumi and there's you know Architect. There's a million frameworks that are out there now. You know, luckily, serverless framework, and I think um, rightfully, serverless framework still has a lot of usage, has a very, very high market share. Um, but I'm curious, one of the trends that we see is that most of these frameworks like SAM, uh, even SST, uh, are starting to adopt support for CDK. And of course, Pulumi is like its own CDK. So I'm curious, is this something that you're seeing a lot of people doing? It feels to me like everyone's mixing and matching, right? Everyone's like, oh, we use the CDK for this. Maybe we put a stack up for, you know, shared resources, but then we're using the framework to launch this part of our application. You know, is there is there some future plans to integrate CDK or some sort of that programmatic scripting of, of infrastructure into the framework? Yeah, it's true that when you look at small teams, they have one tool, but as soon as you look at larger teams, enterprises, they they don't like choose one specific tool. I will use, we will use serverless framework everywhere in every project. We do hear and see a lot about people using serverless framework and Terraform and or CDK and other technologies. So that's definitely here and we need to build with that instead of just keep and, and focus on, we need everyone to use our tool and just our tool. So yes, this is something we are looking into. 
it's interesting to talk with users on how they integrate these different technologies and why do they go and use Terraform, for example, or CDK. We, we do see that you, you, like serverless framework is great when deploying Lambda functions, deploying APIs and, and, and yeah, using all of this for applications. Then some people need Terraform or CDK to deploy shared resources like databases, queues, more complex pieces of infrastructure, uh, and they connect with many different solutions. So they can use SSM parameters, cloud formation imports and, and exports. What we have right now is we try to talk with as many people as possible to try to understand their needs and figure out how can we basically improve the situation, make that easier. So we don't have a, like a solution right now, but this is definitely something that this is a problem that we want to solve. This is something that we want to address and again, make it simpler. And also, if I can just say, there are so many interesting ideas out there. That's also something that we need to, that we, we need to acknowledge. And uh, I've used different right. things. I've used Terraform. I've used uh, CDK as well. There are so many things that are really awesome in these tools. And uh, yeah, there are so many ideas to, to, to consider. And so in the spirit of building for people's needs, right, and listening to what they're asking and then like helping, like building things that are excellent tools that also work with other tools that like incorporate other people's ideas, you are all working on a new feature, which I know is still in its early phase, I believe. But the problem you're trying to solve is the ability to deploy multiple services in tandem. So especially those in monorepos. I'm sure this will resonate with a few folks, but can you tell us a little bit more about this problem, right? And the, the needs that it was solving and what you've been hearing from folks and some learnings you might be able to share from discussions with users thus far? Yeah, sure. Yeah, indeed, you have teams that grow from just deploying one service with a few function to, uh, we've discussed with teams deploying like 25 serverless framework services and try to orchestrate all of them. And like the whole microservice approach with many services. And that's a very interesting problem. They managed to do this, but again, uh, it's not as simple as it should be. When you look at these large projects, how can we make that simpler? Especially some of them, again, integrate with Terraform or CDK or even raw cloud formation. So yeah, we don't have that feature ready and, and with all the details to serve, but that's, that's the problem we want to solve. So we go around and try to spark up discussions with users. How do you deploy these things? And how do you pass uh, values between services? So uh, for example, I may deploy a service that creates a database or that creates an API, and I need to use that database or call that API in a different service. So I need access to table ARN or to the API URL. How do I pass the values around? What do I use? What, what do you use to compile every, um, like bundle and compile if you use TypeScript or whatever, uh, every service uh, and share code between services. So all of these questions. What's really interesting is that we definitely see a common approach, monorepositories with shared libraries and with usually, not every time, usually a stack that contains the shared resources like the database or queues or buckets or domain records. And then the details are always different. So that's interesting as well, because there isn't one solution that works well for everyone. Some people uh, share values using SSM. Some use CloudFormation exports and imports with all the upsides and downsides that comes with it. 
for compilation and orchestration, some people use NPM workspaces or Lerna or NX or TuboRep. And by the way, these tools are amazing in terms of IDs. Again, that's a lot of ideas to pick up from. But yeah, what we are thinking is there are so many different solutions being applied, each one of them with pros and cons. How can we pick the best ideas and try to provide some guidance and provide some features to help with that? So that's kind of what we are doing right now. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I, I was lucky enough um, because I also work at Serverless Inc. to see an early preview of this feature. And it, it's it's super cool. I mean, and, and I, I think there's a lot more learnings in there, like you said, with the shared, you know, shared packages. That is such a huge problem to solve in so many cases. I think Architect is one of the best examples of how well they solve the uh, shared library, um, you know, thing there. But then the dependency graph, it was one of the cool things that you had in that feature or that demo you showed was the ability to say like, this has to be deployed, but then these two can be deployed at the same time as long as this one's deployed. And then this has to wait for that and this has to wait. So there's an ordering to these things and so forth. And I think that's just amazing. And again, you get into the idea of saying like, you know, you change shared code somewhere and the ability to detect that and know, okay, these four services have to be redeployed because code has changed. I mean, that's just, it's just amazing stuff. And I'm just, I'm curious, I know Mark, you did some work on that as well, but you know, what what are your what are your thoughts on on that whole composability uh, aspect of of deploying serverless apps? Yeah, I definitely, I think that it should work that way. I'm technically, you know, in the serverless, we had such engine kind of a before because technically, components developed and the two worked that way. There were also other design constraints there, and they're no longer evaluated. I believe that this new solution will lead us to the really final solution for that, but. It's definitely what we should offer to users that they can deploy multiple services for multiple providers uh, through the like, you know, one, one service setup and not that they independently try to, you know, attach. And that's what they are doing now with the monorepos and servers, uh, you know, serverless framework, like totally distributed and not really connected. Yeah. So then what other, you know, or what are other people doing or like what other, you know, what other tools are there? I mean, you mentioned things like, you know, sort of, I don't want to call them hacky, but like, you know, using learner workspaces or some of that stuff, like just a lot to set up, right? I, I, but are there any other tools out there now that, or other community projects that people are working mm -hmm. on to try to solve this issue? Yeah, I want to call out two projects that are extremely interesting. We've been discussing with the others. So we have a purple stack that is being created by uh, purple technologies. And uh, we've been chatting with Philip, which is behind one of the person behind the project. They have really great ideas. For example, they use Git and Git, uh, like they check changes with Git to see which services need to be deployed. Uh, they have a whole, like they have the project on GitHub and a whole blog post about that. It's really interesting to dive into. Uh, we're also talking with Theodore uh, about a project, which I think is called Swarmion, a new new project of them. They use monorepos a lot and they have, again, so many ideas and sometimes crazy ideas that I love. <laughs> about how to solve these problems. And they are diving into something called against Warmion on how to, yeah, that's an idea that I find crazy, how to define API contracts uh, for each service and then define dependencies between services like this service calls this API. And so this service depends on the API contract of this one. And if the contract changes, then you need to deploy them in a specific order, which is kind of, well, again, uh, Really interesting to dive into. Uh, plenty of good ACs there. So before we sign off, we don't want to go anywhere until you tell us about the serverless console product. 
if you could give us a little bit and listeners a little bit of a preview about what's going on with this. Yeah, sure. It's it's in a very early stage, but technically it's like a new, better version of the serverless dashboard. It's no longer uh, tight to the framework in, in the sense that it could also now be used with the other serverless tools. So it's like a more generic in that sense. So, so the idea is that it can be used to monitor with whatever you deploy. We start currently with the AWS, we start with the Node.js, we start with the framework, but the way that we prepared the extension uh, that will provide the monitoring is that it's generic and that is open source and can be used for any for any other tool. Also, also what's very important, we are relying on the auto telemetry, so, so it's open telemetry stuff, so we are using the standard, which I know it's adapted also by Datadog, so I think it will make easier the cooperation with, between all those console product and i really really believe that we will be one of the key players very soon on that yeah it's a it's a very cool product and again i've gotten to see all kinds of early previews of that as well so the open telemetry support is awesome and the tight integration with uh the framework but also you'll be able to use it outside the framework as well so pretty cool stuff there well unfortunately we are out of time but uh we would love to know or we'd love if you could share with our listeners how people can find out more about each of you how they can go and uh, find out more about the serverless framework so matthew how do people contact you? I would say the best is uh, Twitter. You can find me at Mathieu Napoli on Twitter. And if you have any questions or topics you want to bring up, I'm always up for long discussions or even short ones. And you, Marius? Yes, with me, similar. It's Twitter. I'm Medico. It's Leo, a double O at the end. Uh, also, you can uh, see my profile on GitHub. It's a very say, same handle, Medico. Medico may be more in English. And uh, there's also, I think, email over there on GitHub. If you prefer to contact me over email, but I'm also open on there on, on every discussion that matters. Awesome. And you can go to serverless.com and check out the framework. I would also like to note exactly. that in the time that we've been recording this podcast, the sun has come up in Alaska and it has clearly set for Marius. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it is now dark where he is and it started out light. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure about what Ma Ma Napoli was probably yeah, uh, Matthew. Yeah, it's still there for now, but just for a half an hour maybe. So there's something kind of, thank you so much everyone for joining from all corners of the world for this discussion. Right. Yes, and we will get all of those uh, links into the show notes. Uh, and the two of you, thank you again for being here and go enjoy the evening. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having us. It was great speaking with you, yeah. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Matthew Napoli and Mariusz Novak for being our guests this week and to our sponsor, Lamigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 130. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Becca Odele and me at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.